America before was Serpent Mound in Ohio. On the Joe Rogan experience. I don't know if you've ever been there. Joe. No, I've heard of it though. It is an amazing. Jamie's from Ohio. You ever be there? Yeah, you know, Jamie and I were yeah, talking about sure. it earlier. Well, there's well, Serpent Mound. There's a, there's an aerial view of, uh, of, of Serpent Mound. Oh, that is crazy. But here's the thing. You see that beautiful. head end of Serpent Mound there. So Santa and I went there at the summer solstice in uh, 2017. We were there on June 21st, 2017. And my wife Santa is a photographer and we acquired a drone for this specific purpose. Oh. And she flew the drone up 400 feet above Serpent Mound and we sat it up there watching the sunset. And what happens on the summer solstice, and you can only see it perfectly with a drone. There, there's pictures of it in the in the book here. Uh, what happens on the summer solstice? You can see it from ground level, but you get up 400 feet, you really get it. The head of that serpent is pointing directly at a niche in the distant hills through which the sun sets on the summer solstice, on the longest day of the year. So it's a it's a sky ground alignment, a perf perfection. That is that is taking place there. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing to see to watch that sun majestically sinking down into the horizon and see this awesome figure of the serpent gazing directly at it with its jaws open, almost as though it's about to about to swallow the sun. And then we remember that there are other sites around the world which are also aligned to key moments of the of the solar year, aligned to the winter solstice, for example, the Temple of Karnak in Upper Egypt, that kilometer-long axis targets exactly the rising point of the sun on the winter solstice. One of the interesting things about Serpent Mound, uh, and I urge anybody listening to this, go visit Serpent Mound and especially go there on the summer solstice because that's the moment, that's the marriage of heaven and earth. That's when sky and ground unite in, in majesty at, uh, at, at, at that place. Um, but one of the, the mysteries of Serpent Mound concerns how old is this mound really? How, how, how far back uh, does it go? And there have been arguments that, uh, that there are a group of oh, archaeologists who would like it to be just a thousand years old and they attribute it to a culture called the Fourth Ancient Culture. There's another group of archaeologists, in my view, who've done much more thorough, thorough work who attribute it to the Adena Culture. The thing about which goes back to 2,300 years ago or so, there's evidence for an earlier construction enterprise. It looks like the site has been continuously reconstructed and remodeled, as we would do with any sacred site. If it begins to wear down, you remodel it. And then you get later organic material being introduced to the site that may give you the impression that the site is only that old. What's intriguing about Serpent Mound is it stands on a natural ridge. And that natural ridge, and this is entirely an accident of heaven and earth, that natural ridge, the head end of it, if you like, is naturally oriented to the summer solstice sunset. Somebody, a long time ago, noticed that natural orientation.
and they decided to monumentalize it. Here was a place where Let's her whispered the sky, the earth in her own nature, looked directly at the place on the horizon where the sun was set. This was a highly significant place. This place mattered. So they then created Serpent Mound on top of it. They memorialized it. They turned it into a, into a special, special place that human beings had had a hand in making to honor the marriage of heaven and earth. And what I found, he says in this book, is that Serpent Mound is not alone in that respect. Uh, a lot of people are pu puzzled by Stonehenge in English. Uh, Stonehenge is built on Salisbury Plain. And there are two kinds of big megaliths at Stonehenge. One of them are called Sarsons, and the other are called the Blue Stones. The Blue Stones, we know for sure, were brought a long way. They were brought from Wales to Stonehenge, a distance of about 150 miles. The Sarsons are found in abundance on a place called the Marlborough Downs, which is about 20 miles from Stonehenge. But until very recently, it was thought there were no sarsens on Salisbury Plain at all. And archaeologists couldn't understand why Stonehenge wasn't built on the Marlborough Downs, where the big sarsen stones, the 20 to 30 ton megaliths, were available locally and didn't have to be brought there. Very recent research, 2018 research, has provided the answer that two of those sarsens were naturally in position all the time at at Stonehenge, and they are Sarsen Stone 16 and the Heel Stone. And if you stand behind Sarsen Stone 16 and look at the Heel Stone at dawn on the summer solstice, you see the sun rising in direct alignment with the view. And the Heel Stone is like the sight on the barrel of a rifle targeting the sun, and that was there naturally. Earth was speaking to sky. The ancients saw that. They decided this was sacred. They went to huge lengths to bring the sarsens, the rest of the sarsens, from the Marlborough Downs to create the big stone circle at Stonehenge and then to put the blue stones inside it. But initially, what they were celebrating was a natural union of heaven and earth. And that brings us to the notion of as above, so below. That we are connected to the cosmos, that it is, that it is part of our heritage. We in modern cities forget the cosmos exists. We have all kinds of tech that can look at astronomy, astronomy programs. We can, we can order that actually looking at the stars is something that's very difficult for people who live in cities to do. We're, we're cut off from the cosmos, we're cut off from the notion that it is sacred, that it matters to the human creature. And what, what the ancients seem to have, have done is to realize how vital that connection is, and to memorialize it, and to celebrate it, and to draw our attention to the intimate connection between grand yeah, light pollution sort of fuels our infantile existence in a lot of ways, right? Because it doesn't constantly remind us that we're a part of this great thing. Yeah, light, 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 light pollution is a, is, is, is a huge factor. It's very easy to forget that we live in a universe. Very easy to forget that. Very easy to, to believe that it's just about these cities that we live in and the, and the intimate concerns of our, of our daily lives. But in fact, we're part of something much, much bigger. And my God, I mean, it's it's a mystery enough to be born a human being at all. Yes, you know, <laughs> just to be alive is 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 an extraordinary mystery. Yeah, to have the ability to to love, uh, to 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 feel emotions, um, to understand beauty, to be moved by. By, by a symphony, all of all of these things we take for granted, but actually they're deeply mysterious. We don't really know what we are or or who we are, and which is one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by uh, Rick Strassman's 
work. You, you presented his film, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and on my upcoming speaking tour, I'm going to be doing an event with Rick uh, on the 14th or 15th of May in Sedona. I think it'll be the first time that Rick has spoken publicly for quite a while. Rick has a colleague called Andrew Gallimore, uh, who teaches at the University of Okinawa uh, in Japan, and Rick and Andrew have together developed a, a technology uh, for releasing DMT into human volunteers in a very slow drip that will keep them in the DMT state if they wish for hours on end <laughs> and and the intention the intention is to use this technology to explore and map the DMT realm when do I sign up as soon as possible where do I go it's, it's very close Imperial College it looks like Imperial College London wow. is going to deploy this technology in further research into DMT and that that research is not going to be purely and simply into the therapeutic potential of a psychedelic, which is very important research to do. It's going to be an investigation into the nature of reality using a psychedelic, the mysterious nature of reality. And it is odd, and you know this from personal experience, that when you get plunged into that DMT realm, it is so different from the realm of our daily, daily world, filled, filled with geometry, filled with these sprightly intelligences, completely internal coherent how can that be you know generated by the brain or are, are we dealing with some other level of reality that we haven't encountered yet I think that ancient cultures and in particular my lost civilization were deeply involved in exploring the mysterious nature of reality and, and used uh, the plant medicines as part of that process when it comes to the serpent mound um, where the head points in the summer solstice is that taking into account the procession of the equinoxes in terms of like trying to of the summer solstice sun on the horizon is not affected by the procession. Uh, okay. However, it is affected by another another factor, which is a slight nod on the axis of the earth. A nod, but not a wobble. Not a wobble. And what is the nod? A nod, and and uh, it's called mutation. And the the axis of the earth nods back and forward over a cycle of about forty-one thousand years, and that can that does adjust the position of sunrise on the horizon over a very long period of time and it would in theory if this idea can be taken seriously enough it would in theory be possible to use very precise observations using the latest modern tech not simply being up there in a drone and seeing the general connection between the position of the sun on the horizon and the head of serpent mound it would be possible to refine that and actually say astronomically the precise date on which serpent mound must have been first created to precisely target the rising sun on the equinox wow on that note, we just did three hours. Did we? Flew <laughs> by. I would, I would ask your listeners and viewers while we're talking about Ohio, don't forget about Newark and High Bank. What are those? These are two incredible, amazing, absolutely stunning, gorgeous geometrical sites. It's sad, but one of them is preserved within a private golf course. Oh no! However, it's not so sad because if it hadn't been preserved within a private golf course, it would be gone completely. More than 90% of the Native American earthworks that were documented in the 19th century are gone now. They've been plowed under for agriculture. That's another part of our missing story. There we're looking at Newark. See that 
Octagon and circle combination, that's repeated at another site called High Bank, which is 60 miles away. And the octagon circle... Go back to that me a large image of that. So you an overlay, or is that what it actually looks like? That's what it actually looks like. That's I mean, that's a graphic based on it. Well, the octagon circle combination in the top left of the image are best preserved. The other bits are not so well preserved. And the reason the octagon circle are best preserved is because they're in a private golf club. Otherwise, they would have been plowed under. The interesting the interesting thing is that that octagon circle combination is 60 miles from high bank, but there's another octagon circle combination there, and it is oriented at precisely 90 degrees to that one. That speaks of high science in the Mississippi Valley a very, very, very long time ago. There's so much to explore and so much to investigate and so much to inquire into in America. Uh, it's just an incredible land, and its mysteries have been hidden from us. And I'm hoping with this book that I have managed to pull the veil back a little this bit a on those mysteries. And if we're really coming to the end of our... Is it really three hours? <laughs> My God. If we're, if we're really coming to the end of our three hours, can I repeat, I would love yes. to see readers of my books at my events. I'm doing three events in Canada, Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto. And I'm doing something like 17 or 18 events in the United States. I'm just speaking continuously uh, right the way across the U.S. I wish I could visit every state in the U.S., but my goodness, this is an enormous country. Every state in the U.S. is as big as the entire British Isles, you know. Uh, but I'm visiting as many as I am. I'm going to be giving illustrated presentations. I'll be signing books afterwards. I'll be taking pictures. I would like to meet my readers and please check out my website grahamhancock.com look at the talks and events page and you'll see where all these events are occurring over the next uh, seven weeks we're on the 22nd of april today i will not leave north america until the 5th of june uh, well i hope i see you again then indeed listen thank you so much you're a treasure and this book is i can't wait to get into it america before and the audiobook is available now as well yeah the audiobook's available i read it yeah. Thank you so much, Graham. It's always a pleasure having you here. I really, really appreciate you. Thanks for having me back on, Joe. Graham Hancock, ladies and gentlemen. Bye.
Don't have to self-proclaim themselves, Alpha Male. Wow, he self-proclaimed. It's fucking dumb. Hmm. He's such a dumb fuck. I would not be surprised, now that I'm thinking about it, if this was Nick Adams' idea. You think about it. I bet Gabe Sanchez will agree with me when he comes on to me. This is 100% the doing of Nick Adams. <laughs> I'm probably the first one to say that shit. I should tweet it, really, to get proof. Of course, here's proof on video. Oh, my fucking God. I cannot believe. I, I was. Here's what I was going to talk about. I was going to talk about Nancy Pelosi uh, being uh, remembered by John Boehner with just fucking waterfalls of tears. Of course, John Boehner, he, he'll cry if the wind blows. So it's not surprising it gets all choked up when he goes to and re oh give remembrance Graham Hancock and the first Randall female Carlson. speaker. You podcast by night. All day. And we're live. Gentlemen, here we go again. What's happening? Back in the room. A pleasure to see you guys. As always, this is one of my favorite podcasts that we ever do. And uh, this is very timely. Because uh, first of all, the big New York Times article about the, the possibility of a, a comet hitting Los Angeles, the preparations for what they would do. If a comet hit Los Angeles, and uh, the comet known as Donald Trump that's hit the United States, and he's even got the hand. The whole thing is, I mean, if the end of the world was coming, boy, it's all on the wall. The writing's all there. It's kind of crazy. So what's the latest and the greatest? Well, the latest and the latest and the greatest is, I mean, last year when we sat down with you, I think it was last November. Yeah, it was almost a year. Got floated in the discussion the idea that this really important comet research that's going on, which is just changing our whole view of history and prehistory and of the future of humanity. But it would be good to make a film about this and crowdfund it. I actually mentioned that to the scientists and they said what we really need is more funding for our research. And so they were inspired by basically by your show. They have put out a crowdfunding. Uh, which is linked on my, on my website, it's the Comet Research Group, and uh, it's, it's a big story right now. So how can people find it really quickly? It's Indiegogo. Well, no, Comet Research Group. Much quicker way. Just go, just go to my website, ohamhancock.com, and there's a revolving banner, which is the Comet Research Group. Click on that, and you're in this. Beautiful. Okay, grahamhancock.com, and then crowdfunding for Comet Research. And so what are they you are trying to put together? Well, they're, they're wanting to... You see, the thing is, these guys have actually not had any official funding. This is a group of major, highly credentialed scientists who for the last decade have been investigating the extraordinary story of a massive comet, series of comet impacts on the North American ice cap 12,800 years ago. That is the, the global cataclysm that wipes out a whole civilization from, from prehistory. So that's why it's of, of interest to me. Um, they're not coming at it from that point of view. They're coming at it from rediscovering something that we've lost about ourselves, something that's really important to understand the role of cataclysms in the story of the Earth. And they need to do much more research. So they need to go back to Greenland and, and look for the nanodiamonds in the, in, in the Greenland ice cores. They need, there's, a, there's an ancient city 
which they're not revealing the name of, which they're pretty certain was wiped out by a comet impact about four and a half thousand years ago. They want to go there and investigate that. So there's a lot of field work they need to do to drive home this hypothesis. And to, frankly, put down the opposition, because there's been so much opposition to this idea from people with vested interest in other theories. That, uh, and that's why these guys have not got funding. So the only place they're going to get funding to do this further research is from members of the general public. And that's what we're hoping that will, will happen. It's called the Comet Research Group. There's a banner on my site, and all the links are there to their crowdfunding, to their website, which is full of massive scientific information. It is a, a, a very unusual the flood, thing, the, the, the fact that we know that comets and all sorts of various large objects have impacted the Earth. We, we, we see the craters, we know they exist, it's so rarely discussed. It's so, it's so strange. If it wasn't for this article in the New York Times, I can't remember one of the last time that even came up. So it's such a huge issue. A massive issue, a massive issue. Both Randall and I have really, you know, given a great deal of thought to this. And I think Randall is the, the, the point is that catastrophes are the untold story of our past. We were given a little hint of it. Um, February insurance fraud apparently over there. People slam into each other all the time and they want to record it. So we're fortunate enough to have so many of those videos because of that, which puts it on the record, whereas otherwise it would it would not be. I think, I think people don't, they don't like to talk about cataclysms and catastrophes. And actually, nor do I. Nobody wants a horrible cataclysm to occur. But this is the point, which is that the prospect of a comet or asteroid cataclysm on the Earth is actually much higher than has been pyramids contemporary with so you see, is, even when you correct the inaccuracies on the Egyptian timeline so that it lines up with the events of the Exodus, that still doesn't solve the problem. The pyramids still predate the flood, which means that the only option left over is you have to question the biblical timeline. Now, that's not to say that you should question biblical But rather, is the timeline presented by Christian scientists really even biblical at all? Well, according to the Greeks of diligence, 
he wrote something claiming well, that, I mean well, that was that. made well, by hunter gatherers. It was all just you see, really the previous video that I made narrative. called How Long Were the Israelites know that. in no one Egypt? Knows. Nobody knows I pointed that. out the fact that modern Bible translations are translated from the Hebrew Masoretic text, which is not the original Hebrew, but rather it's a copy of the Hebrew called the Leningrad Codex, which was copied in the 11th century AD. But the Greek Septuagint was translated more than a thousand years before that in 250 BC and would not have been translated from the Hebrew Masoretic, but rather it would have been translated from a different copy of the Hebrew, an older copy which is no longer around today. The Samaritan Pentateuch also predates the Masoretic text and would also have referenced an older copy of the Hebrew. The same is true of the writings of Flavius Josephus and of Paul the Apostle. Yet according to these four witnesses, the original Hebrew text said that the Israelites were in Egypt and Canaan for 430 years. And that's the way that Exodus 1240 was written in the original Hebrew. But more than a thousand years later, when the Hebrew Masoretic text was copied, that phrase, and Canaan, was dropped out of the text. And since all of our Bibles are translated from this corrupted copy of the Hebrew, then all of our Bibles say that the Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years, which is incorrect and mathematically impossible. The truth is, they were in Egypt for only half that time for 250 years. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then I suggest you watch this video first. Now, what I didn't explain in this video is the fact that this is not the only thing that the Masoretic Text has dropped out. There are other things the Masoretic Text has dropped out causing major distortions in this whole time. Great depth. When I read your book, I was just completely enthralled with this idea of history having some sort of rise and fall in civilization. So I've been absorbed in so it says that Arfaxad was 35 when his son was born, and Sheila was 30 when his son was born. But in the Greek Septuagint, it says that Arfaxad was 135, and it says that Sheila was 130. The Greek Septuagint is an something. Especially when you talk about asteroids, that is a very real part of our past. We have a ton of evidence. I mean, there's actual craters that you can look at on Earth. The moon, which has no atmosphere, is littered with them. And if we look at the moon as a model of what could possibly have happened to Earth, or at least, you know, some of them, obviously, with the moon having no atmosphere, it's going to get hit a lot more than we are. But still, this is a very real situation that this solar system, if you take these ages that are in the Hebrew Masoretic text and you plot these on a chart, then you'll notice something really strange. You'll notice that Shem would have outlived almost all of his sons and grandsons during the eighth generation. Now, I've heard it said before that the loss of a child is considered to be the worst possible origin. 
cohabit space with a lot of stuff. It's not as empty as we thought. And just within well, the last six or really seven weeks, we've had two close flybys of previously undiscovered asteroids. This is the point, because NASA keeps saying, well, as you know, there's, we've counted 1,650 asteroids, and none of them are going to hit the Earth in the next 100 years. Well, yeah, that's true. But what about all the ones they haven't counted, which are estimated to run into hundreds of thousands and which haven't been seen yet? And what happens is we see them roughly 10 days before they pass the Earth. That is uh, not enough time to do anything about them. But we have time if we're prepared to be rational and reasonable as a civilization to take care of this issue. Now, when you're dealing with hundreds of thousands of near-Earth objects flying around, what what are the things that could be done to protect Earth? You can paint, it's, it's low tech actually, you can paint one side of the asteroid, affect its albedo so that the sun's rays push differentially on one side rather than the other, that will shift its orbit slightly, it has to be calculated, you can give it a little knock with, uh, with, with a, a rocket basically, you don't want to blow it up, you don't want to turn, you know, your one big piece of artillery shell into a shot, you don't want to do that, you want to, you want to move it into a safer orbit, you can mount jets on it, people are looking now to mining asteroids, of course our our society always goes, our civilization always goes for the, where, where, the, where the money's to be made. But if we can mine asteroids, we can move asteroids, and, and the technology is there. And ironically, the most dangerous asteroids are going to be the ones that are the closest to the Earth, which are the most accessible. And the asteroids pretty much have unbelievable amounts of resources I mean, pretty much everything that is being mined on the Earth can be found in asteroids, from the hydrocarbons to precious metals, to all of these things. And we're not that far away from technologically being able to actually, you know, mount expeditions to asteroids and mine them. And that, that's, the, the, uh, you know, that's the solution I kind of prefer because, again, these things are tremendous sources of all kinds of things that would be usable to an expanding civilization. And um, we could feasibly within a decade or two be mining asteroids. And again, the ones that are the easiest to access are also going to be the ones that are more dangerous because they're the ones that are coming the closest to the Earth. So, and, uh, another point here. There is one specific danger, there's one specific region of the sky that really needs to be looked at, and this is, this is the region of the sky, this is why I wrote Magicians of the Gods, because, because of this discovery, there's a thing called the Corded which is 30 million kilometers wide, and which envelops the solar system, and the Earth on its orbit around the Sun passes through the Corded meteor stream twice a year. Turns out the Corded meteor stream is the debris of a giant comet that came into the inner solar system about 20,000 years ago. That thing was at least 100 kilometers in diameter, according to their calculations. It may have been more so. And then like other comets like Shoemaker Levy 9, which spectacularly hit Jupiter in 1994, it began to break up into multiple fragments. And those carry on orbiting on the original path, which, and as they break up more and more, they degrade, and small bits and large bits break off, and it gradually fills up a and it's huge of debris that the Earth is passing through twice a year. It took us 12 days to pass through it. We do two and a half million kilometers a day on our orbital path. 12 days to get through the Taurus meteor stream. And the scientists of the Comet Research Group have 
have made the point that an big object out of the toy nucleus stream, multiple objects of matrostite, was what hit the North American ice cap 12,800 years ago. It looks like there was a second series of impacts 11,600 years ago from the same toy. It looks like there were other impacts in the Bronze Age. The most recent, almost definite impact out of the toy nucleus stream was Tunguska in Siberia back in 1908. That hit on the 30th of June 1908. Of the Taurid June shower. We, we passed through the Taurid in June and, and in November. Uh, and what they're saying is we really need to focus on this Taurid meteor stream. Their calculations the are that there are hundreds of hundreds of massive objects in the Taurid meteor stream. And you know, as a comet breaks up into bits, it becomes, those bits become asteroids. So those asteroids are circling in the Taurid meteor stream. And I like a bit of strapping on a, a blindfold and crossing an eight lane interstate twice a year. That we don't hit any heavy traffic. Now, how is this being received in mainstream science? I mean, is, is see, there any resistance to it? Because it seems like this is all pretty straightforward and traceable, mostly being ignored. Mostly being ignored. And why do you think that is? By scientists who have a vested interest in other ideas. First of all, there's a vested interest in not admitting that capitalisms are important at all. This goes right back to really to the 19th century when science began to take shape in the form that we know it now. Well, at the time when they were building the tower, they were all living in the same place. And they were all speaking the same language, meaning that the Earth was united. But they thought they would be contaminated by that, divided, they, they preferred to explain any scientific evidence as a result this of gradual process. This is a very clear indication that his father named him this just after the destruction of Babel, when God confused the languages and they all split off in their own separate directions. In fact, they let his father sometimes written in this book, and Heber witnessed the events of Babel. Heber was there when it happened. And when Heber and his family split off in their own separate directions, they were speaking their own language. They were speaking the language of Hebrew, which is why it's called the Hebrew language, because it's named after it. I'm writing this down, this is good stuff. So clearly the Tower of Babel event occurred within the lifetime of Hebrew, just before the birth of the son of Korah. Flavius Josephus says, Salah was the son of Arphaxad, and his son was Hebrew, from whom they originally called the Jews. Hebrew began jocking with Peleg, he was called Peleg,
After all, the Great Pyramid of Khufu would require 30,000 workers, well then surely the Great Tower of Babel would have required many more workers than that. But you simply cannot get that many workers in only a hundred years.
For example, in Genesis chapter 11, you may have noticed that the Greek Septuagint includes an extra Canaan in between Arphaxad and Shelah. The book of Luke chapter 3 in the genealogy of Jesus also includes this extra Canaan in between Arphaxad and Shelah. This extra Canaan does not belong. The oldest known copies of the Greek Septuagint do not include this extra Canaan. Only newer copies do. The oldest known copies of the book of Luke do not include this extra Canaan. Only newer copies do. The Samaritan Pentateuch does not include it. Flavius Josephus does not include it. The Hebrew Masoretic does not include it. Even 1 Chronicles 118 does not include it in either the Greek or the Hebrew. This extra Canaan was added in to newer copies of the Greek when it should not have been. So you can just ignore this extra Canaan there. It doesn't belong. And I did not include the extra Canaan in this chart. So in case you're wondering why it's not there, now you know. The question is, though, is why would the Jewish scribes drop those years off of those ages? Why would they do that? Was it on purpose, or was it an accident? And if it was on purpose, then what was their motive? Well, I think that it was on purpose, and I think that their motive was to disprove what the book of Hebrews says about Jesus being the new high priest. See, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the new high priest. Now, any Jewish person knows that in order to be a priest, you have to come from so according to the law, Jesus cannot be the new high priest, but the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the new high priest, not according to the Levitical priesthood, but according to a different priesthood, according to a higher priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now the book of Hebrews says something really interesting about Melchizedek. It says that he he had no father and no mother, no genealogy, no beginning of days, and no end of life. Apparently, Melchizedek must be some sort of a divine or immortal being, perhaps like one of the sons of God talked about in Genesis chapter 6. Whatever the case, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the new high priest, not according to the fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Now, Jewish rabbis have decided that they would disprove what the book of Hebrews says about Melchizedek by claiming that Melchizedek is the same person as Shem, the son of Noah. Now, with Shem, we know who his father and his mother were. It was Noah and his wife. We know what his genealogy is because it's recorded in Genesis. We know he had beginning of days and end of life because we know when he was born and when he died. And so by saying that Shem is the same person as Melchizedek, that would disprove what the book of Hebrews says about Melchizedek. Not only that, but this would mean that Melchizedek is not of a different or a higher priesthood, but rather he would be the ancestral founder of the Levitical priesthood. Rabbis say that Shem handed the priesthood down to Abraham, who then handed it down to Isaac and then to Jacob and eventually down to Levi. This would mean that Melchizedek is of the same priesthood, not a different one. And rabbis say that the only way for Jesus to be the new high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, is he would have to inherit that priesthood from Levi, just like um, Levi and, and inherited the priesthood from Melchizedek. But since Jesus well, is not a descendant of Levi, then Jesus can't be the new high priest. Um, um, and this um, is the well argument that Jewish rabbis use even to this day. All right, Christianity. 
Our tradition tells us who was Melchizedek. He wasn't an angel or God himself like the Christians teach, but was actually Shem, the son of Noah, who transferred the title of priest over to Abraham and then on through Isaac, Jacob, Levi, and ultimately on. Now, the problem with this argument, though, is that Melchizedek lived the same time as Abraham. Melchizedek interacted with Abraham. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine to Abraham, and Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. But Shem died about 500 years before Abraham was even born. How did Shem bring out bread and wine to Abraham when he had been dead for the past 500 years? Clearly, Shem cannot be the same person as Melchizedek. There's about a 500-year gap in them preventing them from being the same person. And so it appears that a long time ago, some Jews decided to conspire with the scribes and have them drop those years off of those ages. That the way, they could distort the genealogy in such a way to where the lifetime of Shem now overlaps the lifetime of Abraham. This way, they can say that Shem lived the same time as Abraham and then begin to promote the idea that Shem is the same person as Melchizedek. It's all an illusion. In fact, if you ever read an article that says that Shem is Melchizedek, you'll notice that the only literally within a matter of a few years. Now, those we're years were not necessarily dropped out in the 11th century when the Leningrad Codex was copied. They might have been dropped out in an earlier years. copy of the Masoretic. In fact, they might have been dropped out in a copy of the Hebrew that dates all the way back to and the days of Paul the Apostle. Really and and if that's the case, then so that might be why Paul warned Titus and Timothy not to get involved in foolish arguments and disputes about genealogies, nor to give heed to Jewish now, what is Paul talking about here? Why would the Jews want to argue with Christians about genealogies? Hmm. Maybe it's because they distorted the genealogies in their attempt to disprove Christianity. And maybe that distorted genealogy is the one and only single piece of evidence that even remotely supports this ridiculous anti-Christian fable that Shem is the same person as Melchizedek and therefore Jesus can't be the new high priest. Maybe that's what Paul was talking about. So you see, not only do we have evidence that those years were dropped out, but now we know of a motive as to why they would want to drop them out. And that's why I suspect that this is not just some accidental copyist error, like when the Greek Septuagint includes an extra Canaan. No, I suspect that the Jewish scribes dropped out those years on purpose with the intent to deceive. It was me! As a matter of fact, in 1947, there were some ancient Hebrew scrolls that were discovered in some caves on the outskirts of the Dead Sea, known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are hundreds of fragments of ancient Hebrew scrolls that were carefully pieced together and dated all the way back to the 2nd and 3rd centuries BC, more than a thousand years before the Masoretic text was copied. 
Now, unfortunately, Genesis chapter 11 was not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But whenever the Greek Septuagint and the Hebrew Masoretic Text disagree, the Dead Sea Scrolls usually side with the Greek Septuagint more often than with the Masoretic, like in Psalm 145, for example. Paul the Apostle quotes the Old Testament more than three times in the New Testament. And whenever the Greek and the Hebrew diverge, Paul usually sides with the Greek Septuagint, like in Galatians 3.17, which I pointed out in a previous video. And not just Paul, but other disciples as well. Take Stephen the Martyr, for example. In Acts 7.14, Stephen the Martyr says that when Jacob and all of Israel went down to Egypt, they consisted of 75 people total. Stephen the Martyr is agreeing with the Greek. You see, in the Hebrew Masoretic Text in Genesis 46.27, it says that when Jacob and all of Israel went down into Egypt, they consisted of 70 people total. Exodus 1.5 also says 70 people total. But in the Greek Septuagint, it says that they consisted of 75 people total. Exodus 1.5 also says 75 people total. So which was it? Was it 70 or was it 75? Well, Stephen the Martyr says in Acts 7.14 that they consisted of 75 people total. Stephen the Martyr agrees with the Greek Septuagint, not the Hebrew Masoretic. Now, why would Stephen do that? After all, didn't Stephen know Hebrew? Or did the Hebrew text back then say something different? That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls come in. In 1947, they found these ancient Hebrew scrolls that predate the Masoretic text by more than a thousand years. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found Exodus chapter 1, verse 5. And guess what it said? It said that Jacob and all of Israel consisted of 75 people total. The Dead Sea Scrolls provide undeniable evidence that when Stephen the Martyr sides with the Greek Septuagint, it's not because he's disagreeing with the Hebrew. It's because he is agreeing with the original Hebrew. Even Jesus himself sides with the Greek Septuagint. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus quotes a passage of scripture from Isaiah 61, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Jesus uses the phrase and recovering the sight of the blind. If you look up Isaiah 61 in the Greek Septuagint, then you'll find that it includes that phrase and recover the sight of the blind. But if you look it up in the Hebrew Masoretic text, then you'll find that that phrase is completely missing from the text. And since all of our Bibles are translated from this corrupted copy of the Hebrew, then all of our Bibles are missing that phrase from Isaiah 61. But even Jesus himself confirmed that it's in the original Hebrew. Even Jesus himself sides with the Greeks of Jewish. When atheists say that Egyptian history predates Noah's flood, they think that they're disproving the Bible. But they're not. They're simply pointing out an error in the Hebrew Masoretic text. But even Jesus and his disciples discredit the Masoretic text from time to time. You see, they're assuming that the biblical date for the flood was 2350 BC. But according to these three manuscripts, it's not. So if they're right that Egyptian history predates that, then this actually verifies the testimony of these three manuscripts and therefore confirms the accuracy of the original Hebrew from which Jesus and his disciples were quoting. How to do agriculture, and that's now taken as the beginnings of civilization. I would say it is the reinvention or the remaking of civilization. So there are errors that we know about why 
because we can compare the documents, we can compare the manuscripts and see where the errors are. Let's say you have, here's the original, which we don't have. We don't think we have any original documents, okay, so they're all copies, okay. Let's say you find four different copies, and in the first copy, you see an error right here. And then another copy, there's another error right there. In the third copy, there's another error right there, and in the fourth copy, there's an error right there. Can you reconstruct the original? Yes. And that's what scholars do. So yes, sometimes Scrod made mistakes, but in virtually all cases, we know what the mistake was, and we can correct it by comparing it with other documents. Now, I say, why wouldn't God just, if this is true, why wouldn't he just maintain the original? If I had the original, what could I do to it? Maybe this does. I could alter it, right? But if you had a copy, 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 and I had a copy, and I changed my copy. Is everyone going to know who changed their copy? Yeah, because when you get all your copies together and compare it to mine, you go, Turk, you heretic, why'd you do that? Right, so by not preserving the original, you actually are able to preserve the original better. dominate thinking today and um you know in graham's book he devotes several chapters to the story of one 19th uh, 20th century heretic j harlan brett and his story to me kind of encapsulates the whole the whole process of forcing this paradigm shift and for years he was out there exploring this evidence that there had been this tremendous flooding in the in, in washington state and all of his critics were dismissive without ever even going out and looking at the evidence firsthand in the field. But what he did was he stuck to his guns for three decades and continued to amass evidence to the point where they just couldn't, they couldn't dismiss it anymore. And finally, um, a group of them went out um, and began to explore the, the, the landscapes for themselves. And one of the leaders, I think you talked about it in your book, James Lewis, was sort of the leader of the, the skeptic faction that had set out their sole purpose was to discredit and, and lay this whole flood heresy to rest once and for all. But he went out in the field, and they spent about eight days in the field, where he's seeing this evidence for himself over and over again. And when you look at just one piece of it, you might be able to say, okay, there's all other explanations for that. But what happens is when you get multiple lines of evidence all converging, and there's no way to individually explain away each one of those things other than just saying, oh, well, it's all coincidence. What he, this James DeMooley, was honest enough so that after a week out there, they were in a place called Police Falls in southern Washington, which was one of these areas where these tremendous inland tsunamis swept across the land. Um, and I actually just visited there about eight weeks ago when I took a group of people out there and, and took them to Blue Falls to show them right on the spot where James DeRuby was standing when he finally had his epiphany. Do you have the images of that you brought with us? I have images. I can dig them up here. Yeah, okay. I, I sure do. Yeah, I've got some really interesting images to show you. Um, which relates, because, see, this flooding stuff relates directly to the idea of the impact. And we can get into a little bit of that um, explaining how, how these 
parallel lines of, of evidence are now converging. But the interesting thing about but Galuli was that in the in the uh, uh, descriptions of of the trip, he wandered off by himself for a long time away from the group and was standing there looking at this massive cataract with 400-foot cliffs and this little tiny ribbon of water flowing over it and this huge canyon below it and these big boulders. And he'd seen, for a whole week, he'd been seeing this stuff. And it finally got to the point where it was undeniable. And he walked back to the group and the words out of his mouth verbatim were, how could I have been so wrong? And he finally admitted. And at that, that was like a turning point. And now, and again, Graham describes this very effectively in the book, how in a, in a way the flooding phenomena was hijacked and then placed within this more gradualistic context um, to, to, to really to avoid the fact that it was something so anomalous and so, such a departure from our modern experience that we had to look outside of our modern experience to find an explanation. What they wanted to do was find something within our modern experience, and this is the, 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 the cornerstone of the uniformitarian uh, approach, is that we look for a modern example and then we extrapolate backwards from that. And um, so what they did was they saw, well, in, in, the modern term, in the modern world, we have pro-glacial lakes, lakes that, that form in front of glaciers. And sometimes these pro-glacial lakes might be held in by a, a, an ice dam or another glacier. These ice dams will give away and they will cause pretty catastrophic flooding. They're very common up in Iceland because you've got several volcanoes under the, the Icelandic ice sheets. And up there they use the term yokelops to describe these outburst floods. But here's the thing. When you look at the modern versions of it, you basically are looking at floods that are less than one thousandth of one single flow from these floods we're talking about that happened, you know, 12 and 13,000 years ago. One thousandth. Less than a thousandth. Less than a thousandth in peak discharge and in total volume. And, and so, it, and it has been admitted in several places. I've extracted the quote saying, well, we do admit that this is a major extrapolation upwards, but never mind. Yeah. You know, we're going to never mind. It's so disturbing to me. See, Harlan Bretz, for, for 30 years, was walking the walk in the Channel Scablands, and what he saw was evidence for, um, as he called it, a humongous flood, which, which actually rose and fall within, fell within three weeks. And, and he went through decades of being put aside by his colleagues, insulted, they mocked him, they laughed at him, just as the skeptics do today. But gradually the evidence began to mount, and they couldn't deny it anymore, that there had been, there had been flooding. And actually, eventually, they gave Harlan Bretz, J. Harlan Bretz, the Penrose Medal, which is the ultimate, you know, uh, the ultimate bestowal of, of geology in America. He got the accolade. Um, and he said at that, he was more than 90 years old at that time, and he, he said at that time, he said, all my enemies are dead, so I have no one left to gloat over. Um, but, but the point is, in a way, there was nothing to gloat about, because what they did was they, they, they separated him from his central idea. Instead of accepting that there had been one huge flood, and, and that was always his view, they said, oh, there must have been 70 or 80 floods that caused all this damage. And that's what, we're, that's what we are seriously challenging right now. It's so ironic, in a way, that the human desire for knowledge is what has led us to where we are today. We, we have this insatiable desire for knowledge and for innovation, mm -hmm. but that same human desire to achieve is also what 
what's the the ego is responsible for that, mm-hmm. and the ego blocks anything that's contrary to what you've already established as fact. Exactly. As soon as you see something that might throw a monkey wrench into the mm-hmm. gears of what you've been teaching and practicing your whole life, and I know that you've gone through this with Egypt, your mm-hmm. your whole issue with the Sphinx and with uh, Dr. Shock and uh, John Anthony West, yeah. who was on the podcast last month. John was with you just recently. Yeah, he's amazing. By the way, I'm going to be doing a, an event in New York with John Anthony West. When? On the 29th of November. Where? Uh, well, it's in, it's, again, it's linked on my website. Okay. The, de- the details are on the Talks and Events page. It's in, it's in some church somewhere, but I'm going to give a presentation, and then I'm going to interview John live on, live on stage. First time I've ever done that. I'm kind of podcasting, in a way. He's such a character. He's an amazing I man, love that yeah. dude. And... and um, Magical Egypt is, I think, one of the most important things that anybody could ever watch. Yeah. I think that DVD series is just insane. It's yeah. so spectacular yeah. and so fantastic. And next to going to Egypt, which I haven't done, I think that's probably the second best thing. To you be. bet. You bet. Yeah. And John is an example of why we need heretics. This, yes. is the, this is the thing. You see, that, that, that science today, yes, you're right. We have this thirst for knowledge and it's human characteristic, but also we get invested in particular positions. And when people criticize those positions, we take it as an existential threat. And we get if we allow that to happen too much, if we don't keep a place for heretics in our society, then we're never going to do anything novel. We're gradually going to get locked down ossified into the into the existing system we need heretics john has been the leading heretic on ancient egypt for decades pointing out that we should listen to what the ancient egyptians said that their civilization was not a development it was a legacy it was a legacy from the time of the gods and that cast me back again to this whole issue of a lost civilization now when go back Tappy was discovered, it, it indicated you in so many ways, but what are the possibilities, if any, of more of these sites being explored and exposed? I mean, are there more that people are looking at right now, any that are under the radar? Just a year ago, at the bottom of the Sicily Channel, at a depth of more than 120 feet, it's been underwater for at least 9,000 years, is a huge megalithic site. Before the discovery of Gobekli Tepe, that site could never have been explained. The dating is absolutely definite. The seas rose and covered it at least 9,000 years ago. We don't know how long it stood there before it was covered by the rising seas. But there it sits underwater, and I think underwater discoveries, are, and I've had a part to play in this over the years, are, are one of the ways forward. We need to look at those areas because there was a 400-foot rise in sea level at the end of the ice age. You're looking at the amount of land that would be put together in, say, Europe and China as archaeological anomalies, like We're the Great Sphinx, like Baalbek, like like Gobekli and begin to consider what does all this mean? Are we, in fact, a species with amnesia? Are we forgetful of the truth about ourselves? Maybe that's why we're so fucked up, you know, because mm. we just actually don't know. We've made up a story about where we came from and what we are. I certainly think it plays a part, uh, and I also think that conservative skepticism is probably prudent when you're dealing with most scientific of issues. Course. Most things that come up that people are claiming, I mean, there's so many charlatans out there yes. and crazy people yes. that are claiming new discoveries, but uh, in some cases, they examine these discoveries as long as they're far enough away from us or weird enough, mm-hmm. like this new planet that they believe, they're, they have a 90 plus planet percent. Planet 9, yeah. 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 They, they're pretty sure there's something outside past the Kuiper Belt, and they think it's massive. They think it's mm-hmm. at least four times, maybe larger, 
than uh, the United States, or than, excuse me, the world. Than the world, and got an orbit of about 10,000 years. Yeah. And that's interesting with comets, because mm -hmm. this huge object circulating in the outer solar system through the Kuiper belt, which is the source of many of the comets that hit the Earth, mm. is destabilizing comets from safe orbits and putting them into really dangerous orbits that and come our way. The, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, what, what is the source of all these near-Earth objects? Does, does it have anything to do with Earth-1 and Earth-2? Does it have anything to do with the initial impact that created the moon? Is that Because we were hit by another planet, right, during the formation of the Earth? And this is all scientifically established, uh, astro-scientists, or yeah. astrophysicists, rather, and uh, astronomers all agree on that, right? There's, There's a lot of debris that yeah. would, would go back to that, to that time. But, mm -hmm. but comets are another story, because they're coming in from the far reaches of outer space. They're coming, they're coming in from the Oort cloud and the Kuiper mm -hmm. belt, just vast distances away. They're, they're voyagers. They're kind of messengers from the distant reaches of the cosmos who, who come in in an unpredictable way because their orbits are destabilized by something like Planet Nine. Isn't there something called Bode's Law, where you uh, you can measure the mass and the orbit of a certain planet, and you can accurately depict where the next planet is going to be? And doesn't that fall apart somewhere between Mars and Jupiter? That's With the asteroid belt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which which would indicate that something was probably there. At That's one point been the in theory of the asteroid belt that it was an exploded yeah. planet. Of course, there's a lot of opposition to that theory mm -hmm. too. You know, you're right. Nibiru. Skepticism really Nibiru. has an important Nibiru. role to play. It's it's no. very it's really it's really essential that we are skeptical. Otherwise, we'd all be following Zachariah Sitchin well, and waiting for the Anunnaki to land. Exactly. We would have sold our houses December 21st, 2012, and we'd all be going, what the fuck, now I'm homeless. Exactly. Four years later. And I have to say, there's a skeptic called Michael Heiser who has done really an excellent job of, of thoroughly, you know, debunking the bogus translations of uh, Zachariah Sitchin. Yeah, is he at SitchinIsWrong.com? SitchinIsWrong.com. Yeah, it's a very useful, it's a very useful site. So we I need, hated him and loved him at the same time. I, I feel, was so I've, sad. I love the idea of the aliens come down and manipulating the monkeys and making yeah. us to mine gold. It's a wonderful yeah. story. But unfortunately, it's a work of science fiction. It's not a work of fact. Damn uh, it, Zachariah. We, we, we need, I knew him. He was a fascinating man. I once drove him from Stonehenge to London. We had, we had many conversations. He was a deep and serious researcher, but I think he, I think he got, he got carried away with his well, own. I also think that that fantasy became very lucrative, and it also became uh, a source of identity to him. Yeah. You know, I, I followed him pretty closely as well. I read the Twelfth Planet, and uh, I got really into his research. And this is in my early pot smoking days when I first started smoking pot. So I was, I was all in. <laughs> I was all in. Yeah. And then as I got wiser, and then as I got well, not honest, maybe not wiser, just I started recognizing objectively why these these things are so attractive. Mm. The fantastical is more attractive than the practical. Mm. And so something else, uh, again, I don't want I don't want to put Sitchin down, and I'm I'm here also to say that Sitchin did, did a lot of really good work. He was a, he was a clever guy, and he yeah. did a lot of very 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 thorough research. Um, I just lost my track actually, smoking too much dope. Where was I going? Uh, well, we were talking about. Um, the, all the, the difference between the fantastical and the practical, that there's this inclination to uh, accept things that are fun. Yeah. You know, that's what I was going to say, is that when you start talking about the Anunnaki, those from heaven to earth came, yeah. these fantastic creatures from... Thank you, you brought my memory back. Bureau, I you. remembered what I was going to say. What's interesting... need some pot. Could be, could be good. What was, um, what's, what's interesting is that the level of technology that Zachariah attributes to the Anunnaki, Oblique Nephilim, 
that that level of technology is the level of technology that we had in the 1970s when we were, um, you know, NASA was doing its stuff. So it's NASA technology from the 1970s that is projected out onto, uh, that is projected over to Graham. That is projected out, that is projected out onto his theory of the past. Now it seems to me very unlikely that the Nephilim or the Anunnaki would have had for 400,000 years, which is what he's saying, the same technology that NASA had in the 1970s. It's much more likely that he's projecting that onto the dust rather yeah. than that it's actually inherent in the dust. There was also some interesting ideas that he had that turned out to be ideas that scientists had also proposed about preserving our atmosphere by, by levitating or by suspending reflective particles in our atmosphere. And that, that is something that the Anunnaki, in his book, were going to use gold for, because gold has such unique properties, which is why they use gold to plate things, because you can take a little tiny piece of gold, you can plate this entire table. Gold is a really spectacular yeah. piece of, uh, I mean, it's just, uh, there's nothing like it, right? Absolutely. No, so. there's, there's a lot of really good material in Sitchin, but unfortunately, the translations of the texts the translations of the text are not translations of the text. They misrepresent the text. Often what he did was he took a 19th century translation and he massaged it so that it would uh, you know, fit, his, fit his argument. And that's a pity. So we need skeptics, and they help us to sift out the wheat from the chaff. And that, but but at, occasionally what the skeptics do with this drive to, to criticize anything that's not mainstream, occasionally what they do is they let go a really good idea, which deserves investigation, and which the human species could benefit from. And that's my feeling is we're this amazing species. We've developed all this science. Why are we why are we so ready to let go of wonderful ideas? Well it's also fascinating to me that because of what Sitchin has been sort of criticized for, people now ignore the stuff that's absolutely undeniable the actual stone tablets themselves, the clay tablets, where you can see the depictions of the solar system. Somehow or another, these people from 6,000 plus years ago have a detailed map of the solar system. That's a clear idea. With the size in like a, a relatively correct order in the, the planets in the right place. Like they somehow or another knew that Jupiter was bigger than Mars. They, they knew these things in some weird way. And we don't know why. We don't know how. Also, the caduceus representing the, 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 the double helix of the DNA. That's a really fascinating concept, too, that the caduceus is used for medicine, and it's used to, rep I mean, it's just, he, he had some really interesting points, Zechariah did. So it's, it's kind of too bad there was so much crazy involved in that. I think what, we, what any of us should do when we're exploring the deep and hidden mysteries of the past is, is to go to a lot of different sources. Go to a lot of, don't just stick with the mainstream, don't just stick with the alternative, but try to try to bring it all together. And in a way, that's what I try to do in my books, except the skeptics well, still hate them. Yeah, but it's so hard because it's, it's, so, the, uh, it's so fun to go with the church. crazy story. Yeah. Like, the, the alien story is so compelling. It's so fun. Very compelling story. I mean, if we found some sort of evidence of aliens, it would be so utterly spectacular. Even if it was a simple alien. Like, I've always said this, that if we found, like, a jellyfish on the moon, we would freak out. But, you know, there's really complex, bizarre things at the bottom of our ocean that we've never discovered. Just They're just not in the, the correct location for us to be excited. And then the other, the other issue, we're getting slightly off our flood topic here, but, okay. the, but the other issue of, uh, of, of entities, that, that the encounters with entities, anybody who's smoked DMT will know that 
as I have, as, as you have, uh, that will know that you do encounter entities in the DMT, in the DMT state, and they do communicate with us. And there's a lot of parallels with the ETs or the aliens, as they're described in modern UFO abduction accounts. Um, and Rick Strassman, have you ever had him on your show? You know, Rick got sick. He was yeah. supposed to be here a couple of times. We're trying to reschedule it now. Yeah. But he had some pretty serious health issues. I know. We had a date scheduled out, but I, I love that guy. I've had a chance to sit down with him a couple of times yeah. and talk to him. And, and of course, you presented DMT to Yeah, yeah. yeah he's yeah. brilliant. And yeah. he's so important to me because I remember when I did it, I was so confused. I mean, to me, it was like the first, my first DMT experience changed everything I thought about the world. Yeah. And I immediately didn't give a shit about aliens. Like it was almost instantaneous. Like yes. before then, I was like, Roswell, they've got the, they've got the ship, yeah. man. Yeah. It's in a hangar. But what I encountered doing DMT was so spectacularly alien yeah. that the pedestrian concept of something that looks like a person but has a bigger head yeah. and large eyes. And high attack. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was as weird and cool as it would be if it was real. It was nothing. I mean, literally not one millionth as interesting as what you absolutely can encounter when you do DMT. Yeah, like, that's, that's the aliens. That's the aliens. An utterly alien realm filled with alien intelligences who communicate. And of course, again, the skeptics say, oh, it's all just made up in your brain. But we don't know that. And we Rick is open that. to the possibility that we are dealing with areas of reality that are not normally accessible to our senses and that become yeah. accessible to our senses by retuning the receiver wavelength of the brain, which is what he suggests DMT does. And I think, I think that's very plausible. And at the very least, those who are interested in UFOs and aliens should be also investigating this line of inquiry. Can we, can we use changes in UFOs. consciousness to understand the majestic complexity of the universe in which we live? And I think the answer is definitely yes. And many of Rick's volunteers, I paraphrase, but they came back with reports that the entities who'd encountered them said, we're so glad you've discovered this technology. Now we can communicate with you much more easily. You know, it's fascinating. So there's a technology for encountering other intelligences. And, and against that, this mechanistic, simplistic alien meme that's going around now that they're a bit like us, but they came here in higher tech, higher tech. It's dull by yeah. comparison with it, it is dull by comparison. If you're interested in anybody, the, the book is amazing. It's called mm -hmm. DMT, the Spirit Molecule. And he has a new book that he's uh, putting out about... DMT um, and the Spirit and the Soul of Prophecy. Yeah. yeah. And um, he's just a really, really interesting guy. But his, his experience that he did, experiments that he did were the first, I think, in many, many decades to get approved by the government. Correct. So he did everything above ground. I mean, he was above board. He was. Uh, he did, and because it, because it was government approved, the, his, his remit was that he had to find some therapeutic benefit for DMT, and he yeah. couldn't, actually. But that's not the point. Yeah. It, I'm, I'm sure, actually, there are therapeutic benefits, but that's not the point. The point is, here is a tool for investigating the mystery of consciousness and the mysterious nature of reality. And I mean, fuck me, if we get five or six volunteers who haven't compared notes, all coming back who've met entities who said, we're so happy you found this technology. Yeah. It's hard to explain that, uh, just to reduce it to brain activity. Not only that, when we talk about things that are so big and are ignored by mainstream culture, this is one that's just like that. You're talking about an endogenous human chemical yeah. that not only is in us, but is in thousands of different plants. Like, I mean, how many different plants contain DMT? Huge number. I mean, Huge very prosaic ones like peas and, you know. Well, there's the main like acacia. store. Acacia. acacia. That's what I was going to say. The, the Australian national tree is actually illegal. Isn't that but, but the, the Jerusalem, uh, the, the professors from the University of Jerusalem, I believe that? Benny Shannon. Yeah, what they were talking about, they believe that that's what the story of the burning bush of Moses is. So that is um, Mimosa. 
with the DMT and Syrian rue with the monoamine oxidase inhibitor. In other words, it's, it's ayahuasca, mm -hmm. uh, but a, a, a Middle Eastern alternative of it, doing the same thing molecularly. And isn't it possible in some way that the idea of the burning bush was them figuring out how to dry or extract DMT and very, burn it? Very likely. Very possibly, right? Because they're talking about the burning bush producing God, yeah. and it just so happens that this bush is, uh, the acacia tree is incredibly common and super rich in DMT, and it's all over the area. And I should probably insert at this point that if you're at all familiar with the Masonic ritual, you'll know that the acacia plant plays a central role. That's right. You're one of them one percent Mason characters. Every yeah. now, every now and then, insiders. Every now and then on Facebook, Randall, I get accused of being a Freemason. Hancock is a Freemason. I know it, it, it explains everything. I know lots of Freemasons. I've spoken in Masonic lodges, but I'm an author and I shouldn't belong to clubs. You know. I went to a few, I went to a wedding that my friend Duncan Trussell was performing at for these two Satanists in like 2003, and to this day, it was uh, with one of the Levays, Anton Levay or Stanton Levay, whatever, it's his yeah. son. <laughs> and his son got married. Some young hedonist, you know, and they call themselves Satanists. And uh, so Duncan performed at this uh, wedding, and I went there. To this day, I get fucking tweets about being a Satanist. So I can't join your little club, pal. I can't well, be one of your masons. I, I need to confess here, Graham. <laughs> yes. You didn't realize this, but I secretly initiated you. Oh my God! Oh, you're in. <laughs> How do you get in? How do you secretly initiate? Can you do that for real? <laughs> I sort of did. Sort of. But well, you could get him in if you wanted to, though, right? If you know the people. Oh, of course. You, you, you even you, Joe. Uh, I don't think so. It's not happening, bro. I met, I met a couple of Masons. They're very cool. Well, most Masons don't really understand the corpus of symbolism that, that they're sitting on top of. i got to say that. Not to get off on the Freemasons, but simply right. there's a mass of symbolism. And that's the whole, that's, that's the thing that they're custodians of. And most of them don't have a clue what it means. But they're mm -hmm. doing an important job by preserving this corpus of symbolism through the, through the layout of the lodge, the... Um, the meaning of every component in the lodge because it's a purely astronomical allegory. And then you have the Masonic carpets, and that's where you have the whole story of the comet, the flood. It's all there. The Asia plant, it's all there. It's all, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's all uh, also an integral part of how Washington, D.C. was designed. Is that true? Yeah, I, to some extent. I haven't, you know, I honestly haven't studied that too oh, okay. much. Mm -hmm. But what I've seen is that there's a, there's a bunch have, of videos yeah. where you can watch it where they sort of describe how the layout, you know, is in some way some sort of sacred geometry. I think that's what it's based on. Freemasons were massively involved yeah. in the construction of Washington, as they were of many great cities. The city yeah. I live in England has got, you know, major Masonic architecture. So is it like people like me, like my initial prejudice, I hear something like the Masons, like, oh, fucking dudes in a cult, get out of here, leave me alone. Like, we, we assume that all groups of people that follow anything mm. somehow or another are wacky. Masons, in my opinion, they're largely a drinking club for men. Mainly mm -hmm. that's what it is. Guys they don't like women in at all? But they, they can make special arrangements to bring women into a lodge. Oh, For good. example, my wife, when I've, gi when I've given a talk in a lodge, I've given that talks in like two or three lodges, been asked to do so, the then they make a special the ceremony to allow my wife Sartre to come in, because I won't go anywhere without Sartre. Uh, and uh, so women can, women can go in, but then there are more, there are others within masonry who are pursuing deeply esoteric interest and exploring the mysteries, and you can have incredible conversations. So it's just another, another group of people who, who you know, are doing are doing their thing. It's not for me. I wouldn't join. I don't. I, I would lose. I think if I joined Freemasonry, 
it would weaken me as an author. I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm better able to comment on these things by not being a member of any such group. That's interesting. Why do you think that? Well, because I think I have to remain open to all possibilities. And if I, if I, if I commit myself to a particular line, I don't commit myself to a particular religion. I don't commit myself mm. to a particular men's club either. I just, which is what yeah, Masonry is. Be, uh, I, I, I think if I commit be. that, then, but then ultimately I would become a spokesperson for that. And I don't want to be that. That makes a lot of sense considering your occupation and how important being open-minded has been to your life. It's vital. It's, it's absolutely, absolutely. Without it, how could you have ever done fingerprints of the God? I could not. You, you have to, I mean, and the, the, the thing, the, uh, the initial thing where uh, you were telling me about uh, Ethiopia, the place where they believe that the, the Ark of the Covenant lays, which mm -hmm. is one of the most bizarre ideas ever. Mm -hmm. And that was know, my first book on a historical mystery was the sign of the seal. To, to try and even go into it, like it's so interesting. But I just, I've always imagined you as a young guy forced to sort of reconcile with this bizarre piece of evidence. You've got these old men that have cataracts on their eyes and they're around radiation sites, and no one's allowed to go inside and see this thing. And they claim they have the Ark of the Covenant in there, and like, what the fuck is in there? It was the beginning yeah. of a magical journey for me. It, it's been a magical journey for all your fans, too, for guys like me, man. When I read Fingerprints of the Gods, it was... To me, it was uh, one of those books I just couldn't put down, and it was so mind-blowing. And this, is, again, was in my, the heart of my... Yeah. Fucking aliens, the Fingerprint, man! <laughs> Fingerprints was published in 1995, and Magicians came out in, 20, in, in 2015. And I would say, in that time, the, the evidence... When I made the case for a lost civilization and a global cataclysm in Fingerprints of the Gods, I can't begin to account for the amount of hostility and anger and rage that I generated in the academic community. The idea was considered to be absolutely absurd. Twenty years later, with Magicians of the Gods, it's not so absurd anymore. The evidence is mounting. We have incredible evidence now for a global cataclysm in exactly the period that counts between 12,800 and We have redefinition of the Sphinx. The whole area is just about to explode in in, in, in the future. We're on the edge, I, I believe, of a, of a paradigm shift and this comet material is central to it. What I really appreciate about your courage is that you've also had the courage to admit when you've made mistakes. Yeah. You're, you're not, you don't in any way pretend to be some sort of a, a bear of secret knowledge no. that no one else possesses. And absolutely not a guru. Yeah. I don't want to be anything like that. I'm a reporter. That's that's right. what I am. And I'm, I'm a reporter yeah, who's too. reporting on offbeat subjects. And well, to some extent, I'm an, so I'm an outsider. So one of the talks I do now is about being, a, being an outsider. I think, there is a, I think there is a place for outsiders in society. Well, I don't think you're an outsider. I think you're an outsider from the established mainstream ideas. I just think that I Me and Randall are the same. We're both we're both outsiders in that area and working in different fields to get into this. But don't you think that these established channels that were so deeply grooved in distributing information, those things have widened so wide now where you're getting, I mean, a, a professor could do a podcast. Like he could teach a class and he could write a book. Or he can do a podcast on a certain subject and like... You're aware of Dan Carlin and that Hardcore History podcast, sure. I just can't stop raving about. But what he's done is brought historical, accurate, but really dramatic stories of real events that took place to millions. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that's just that no one's doing that. Like, this is, but it's not 
mainstream. Well, what's more mainstream than being number one on the iTunes podcast list, sure. which he is all the time? What is more mainstream than he must be getting millions of downloads? It's part of the big change that's taking place in our society, that yes. the old structures are being overthrown. They're being thrown away. It's a very uncomfortable time. It's a very uncertain time. It's a very exciting time right. because we can yeah. build out of this something, something amazing in the future. The Internet's had a huge part to play in it, the fact that people can communicate with one another all around the world. Well, since I've had a web presence in the last... I was a latecomer, but maybe two or two to three years ago, I've, I've been getting contacted by, I mean, professionals from around the world. I've got probably a dozen major ones. I've geologists who want to know more about. And interestingly, you said earlier about debating. You know, I'm always looking for somebody to debate about. Yeah. It. Right. I, I, you know, because I have questions, and I'm thinking. Maybe somebody, even somebody who would disagree with me on something, could still help me answer some of those right, questions. Right. But I try to associate as much as possible and hang out with professionals in the field. And of course, what I discover is that a lot of them are working in these things part time, almost clandestinely, without making it part of their. You know, if I go on a, a field trip with geologists into the the floodlands. None of them are really working on it full-time. It's all part-time. You know, they're working mm -hmm. for the government. They're working for the oil companies or, you know, ex exploration, mineral exploration, whatever. They're doing this research into geological catastrophes <clears throat> on their own time. Right. But recently, just last summer, I got invited to actually present some of my research to the Atlanta Geological Society, which is the largest society of professional geologists in the southeast. So I jumped at the chance rather than, you know, and so I presented hoping that I would get challenged, that somebody would say, wait a second, there's a flaw in your thinking here. Mm -hmm. Didn't happen. So did you make friends with some of these uh, mainstream geologists? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I've been known. I mean, when I, I just took a trip for um, uh, in September, spent 10, 10 days back out in the floodlands, and I had a geologist with me on that trip. Um, so, yeah, I'm getting to know more and more people who are working as, well, you know, I, I majored in geology in college, mm -hmm. so I still uh, am in touch regularly with the head of the geology department. I see her pretty much on a regular basis and have been keeping her apprised of some of my stuff. And she has off, offered to sponsor me at whatever point I think that I can pull it together as a dissertation. Mm -hmm. But we'll see how that goes. I mean, I, my objective was to, to learn geology, not to become a professional geologist. I wasn't interested in working for the government or working for, you know, the energy industry. I had geological questions, and that's why I majored in geology. And you've walked the walk. And <clears throat> in, in my opinion, you know more about this stuff than 10 fully Ph.D. geologists. Yeah, you always freak me out. So what, what, what's, what's fascinating to me uh, about all of this is that I think what you've done has been very measured you know, everything you back up with facts and photographs and, and dis descriptions and disclaimers. You know, when you, when you say, well, it's, it is possible, you will go down other various paths. You're not dogmatic about these ideas, but you've spent so much time going over this. I, I don't know if there's another, if there's a commensurate guy in mainstream archaeology that has been public about it the way you have been. Because if there is, I feel like we probably would have heard about him. Your podcasts have been... The ones that we've done, they've been seen by millions of people. They've been listened to by millions of people. I mean, the, the information is getting out there. and It's making a real difference. You're always going to have the, the guys, like I think for Michael Shermer is very real. important. I'm not criticizing him. But that knee-jerk reaction to do something, to mock something or put down something that's not mainstream. Like one of his tweets, 
he said, do you know what archaeology with evidence is? And he wrote archaeology. Like, why would you even tweet that? That doesn't even make any sense. Like, yeah. that's someone who's not paying attention to your work. That means that all that you do is focus on evidence. I'm reminded of the Shakespearean line, methinks the lady doth protest too much. Why does he need to say that it's got the evidence, you know? Or it's like, it's like Fox you. News saying fair and balanced, you know? He's tweeting at you with this. Yeah. Meanwhile, your entire book is based on photographic evidence. Yeah. And all the other various pieces of evidence. I mean, that your Facts, whole thing documents, is... Facts, documents, It's all about examining all these pieces of evidence. It's not, it's not things that you've invented. These are actual real sites that you can look at. I'm and drawing inferences from them that they yeah. don't like. That's the thing. Well, well, Robert Schock and guys like him are so important. Yeah. Guys who have the courage, who's a Boston University professor, Absolutely. who has the courage to look at the stones and say this is the product of water erosion. Kudos, to, kudos to Robert Schock as, as a geologist, like as, a, as a, a, a career academic geologist who's taken that risk and put himself out there and followed the evidence where it leads. Another one is Danny Hillman Natawajaja in Indonesia, who's been responsible for the investigation of this extraordinary site at Gunung Padang, uh, where work has been stopped since 2014. Again, he's a highly credentialed geologist. He's Indonesia's leading expert in mega thrust earthquakes, but he's been looking at archaeology, bringing his geological expertise to that. So the, things are changing. We are finding we are finding academics who are willing to engage and willing to to discuss. I I got into a very interesting email correspondence with a guy called Daniel Lohmann at Baalbek, but from the German Archaeological Institute, who's an architect and an archaeologist, and he was very civil with me, and I, he answered my questions. We went into it in depth. We had quite a long debate. That's very refreshing. That kind of thing wasn't happening 20 years ago. Yeah, that is very refreshing. Now, what about those pyramids in Bosnia? Has that been... What is what is the deal with that? Are I've, those things... I've been there. I know Sam Osmanagic personally. Sam is the guy who's, who's promoted the site. Um, I like Sam very much. Um, I must say, when I'm in his aura, I'm extremely convinced. Uh, but when I when I look rationally at the at the so-called pyramids, I don't think they're pyramids. I think they're hills. I did spend with Sam showing me around. I did spend three days in Bosnia looking at the so-called pyramid of the sun, the pyramid of the moon, the love pyramid, and so on and so forth. I do see that a, a tourist industry has built up around this, and it's a fabulously beautiful, intriguing site, it's a massive, beautiful, mountainous place. But they are hills. They are not pyramids. Impression is given that there are tunnels, passageways inside the pyramids. That's not true. The passageways are about two, two and a half kilometers away. They're very low tech. Um, I, I just don't, I just don't see it. And for that reason, I did not cover the Bosnian pyramids in Magicians of the Gods. I'm not going to say they're not pyramids. I'm not going to write a book saying that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. But I, they didn't excite me enough to justify devoting a chapter to them. There's much more exciting and important archaeological discoveries that are being made, like which need more space. And there's some, there's some pyramid-like structures or hills in China as well, right? There's thousands of pyramids in China. Xi'an, the province of Xi'an, is just the moment you land there of your aircraft, you're seeing pyramids everywhere. I've been really? there. There are certainly hundreds and hundreds of them distributed across fields, vanishing off into the distance in all in all directions. They've been terraced and used as agriculture. The local farmers grow, grow crops on them. I went there with Chinese archaeologists. They haven't excavated a single one. 
not Whoa. one. Why not? They said, we don't have, this was nearly 10 years ago I was there, they said they probably got the money now, but they said then they didn't have the money, they said we're an old country, we don't mind if we wait 200 years to get to grips with this. Jesus Christ. And the famous tomb of the first emperor is part of this pattern. It is also a pyramid, it has also not been excavated, the terracotta army around yeah. it has been found. The terracotta army is amazing. Oh yeah. I, it was on display somewhere, wasn't it? Where you can go and see it live? Yeah, they did some kind of travel. I, I'd want to see that thing. I'd want to yeah. look at those things. What what a bizarre concept. Yeah. Now, these pyramids, so this one that this, uh, this emperor was buried in that had the terracotta army, was that a pyramid as well? It is a pyramid. It is. Absolutely. It's a man-made pyramid. Uh, the terracotta army was buried around its edges, not in the pyramid itself. So the army was there to protect him? Yeah, idea? to protect his soul into the afterlife seems to, have been the, seems to have been the idea. And then there's a mythology that's come down, that, the, that within the pyramid is a lake of mercury, that there are mechanical devices in there which will fire arrows at you if you go in. That there's a whole story about how, how intensely protected it is. And up to this day, it's not been excavated. That's so crazy. How could someone leave that alone? And you know, even major archaeological sites like Tiwanaku in Bolivia, for example, you'll find that only about 2% of the site has been excavated. I don't know how we can draw inferences about the whole site from, from a tiny little fragment, fraction like that. And that's the, that's the problem, I think, with archaeology, and it's why we have to you know, consider another way. We're looking at an image of the terracotta army now yeah. in, in front of this pyramid, and it is spectacular. Mm. Now that I think about it, I don't think that was on display anywhere. I think maybe they had a couple of them. They brought some of them. They came yeah. to the British Museum. There were a number of museums. But it's to. so much bigger than I thought it was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, how many, there's thousands. Yeah. There's thousands of these terracotta figures. Absolutely. And this pyramid was made out of what? Was it stone? Ramped earth, mainly. Okay. So they just sort of shaped the, the ground. They just dug around yeah, it. Yeah, they, they brought in earth and mm -hmm. turned it into a pyramidal mound. Over the but top. it wasn't... Uh, it's, so not, it's, just it's not massive stone top. blocks. It's not massive stone. That's why they can grow crops on the sides of some of these pyramids. Wow, how weird. Yeah. So they would build these giant mounds of dirt and then dig holes in them and support them? And, like, well, the, they probably, they, the they probably created the interior you know, subterranean as they were building the whole thing mm. over it. Yeah. And they just stacked dirt on top of it. Yeah. Wow, what a yeah. weird way to make a house. Yeah, and then we have to consider this with, you know, with, with archaeological sites all, all around the world, is mm -hmm. that any site may actually not be the product of just one culture, but may have been reworked and worked over and used by many different cultures over this many different periods. stunning to me. Um, I found out about this because of a friend of John Anthony West who was here with him. He showed mm -hmm. me, he lives in China, and he showed me some video of it, and I was like, how do I not know about this? Mm -hmm. I had no idea there was this many of them. So here's one that's exposed. What's this one? <clears throat> Controversial ancient pyramids of China. That one yeah. looks exposed. Yeah. And that one looks blocky. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is a, another thing about China that we just don't have a clue. When we, when we think about the, the age and scale of things, mm. we're so silly. We've only been around since, you know, 1776 is when the country was established. It's not really that long ago. You're dealing with China. You're dealing with literally thousands of years of civilization all rising and falling and taking place and adapting and growing, all in this one area. That's mm -hmm. still, in our eyes, in a lot of ways, it's kind of behind, right? I mean, they're behind environmentally, they're behind when it comes to human rights. Consider this. The Portuguese, in the late 1400s, have rounded the Cape of Good Hope, and they've entered the Indian Ocean in their little ships. 
They've entered the Indian Ocean and they actually establish a huge empire. They go to Malacca. They go all over the place. Okay, The seas are open to them. If they had come 40 years earlier, they would have encountered the Chinese treasure ships. Ships that were 50 times larger than the little caravels that the Portuguese were, were sailing in. Bastion, you know what the Chinese did at that time? They went through a period where they felt they just wanted to give gifts to people. And they put together these huge fleets carrying incredibly precious gifts, silks and, and ceramics. And they took them all around the Indian Ocean and they just gave them to people. Wow. So, so off the coast of East Africa and in East Africa, you can find remains of this pottery from this episode. And then a Chinese emperor came along and he closed the doors. Burned all the boats, shut everything mm -hmm. down, and didn't let anybody speak to China for 200 years. Whoa, what a dick. <laughs> well, he, he felt that it was time for the Chinese culture to turn inward. Yeah. Uh, and he, they were afraid that, they were, that their ancient culture, on one hand, there might have been maybe a, a laudable motive in that they were concerned that the ancient culture was going to get contaminated mm -hmm. by too much contact sure, with, yeah. with degenerate that... cultures from other places, and that was a factor in it. That... that constant desire to maintain the current situation it's human we have to say it's some kind of some kind of human nature yeah for sure i'd love to see some of these images of the yeah the, let's look the, at the, the drone cool. stuff from the camas the camas yeah. prairie and what what, what yeah, else let's, what, please um and let's 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 have a look at it you got that, that i want to get that this chinese parents are still blowing my mind they blow my mind as well i just can't believe they haven't been excavated it's an eerie spooky scene i would mean, recommend any, anybody to go to Siam and just uh, just it's incredible how many of them there are um, and how unexplained it all is. And it's, again, it feeds into my general point, is we don't remember our past. What are we looking at here? Okay, let's, let's, can we pause so I can talk about what we're looking at? Yeah, you look at this one, that way you can hit the mic right in front of you. Okay, this is the beginning of it. Okay, what we're, here's what we're Get looking at. Get that mic right up to you there. We're yeah, looking yeah. at a place in western Montana called Camas Prairie. And you see some hills in the foreground, and you see a basin in the background, right? Okay. Right here on top of this hill and down on the side here, you see that there are some quarrying operations. Those are quarrying gravel because everything you're looking at here, this whole landscape between the hills are these large masses of gravel, trillions of tons of gravel. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to start sweeping around as the video plays, and you're going to notice down here a series of ripples. Oh, okay, I see that. Okay, and I'm going to have Jamie pause in a second, but let's keep coming around. Do you start seeing the ripples on yeah. the landscape? Let's pause right there. Right there, let's pause. Now, I wish I had a pointer, but if you look up, you're going to see a flat piece of land like a tongue coming out, rounded. Yeah, Jamie's... Uh, <laughs> that's a, you get you a laser. That's a delta. That's a delta. You know what a delta is? You ever heard of a, a delta? It's when a river comes into a body of water and it's carrying sediment. And because the river is moving along swiftly, it's carrying the sediment. But when it comes into the standing body of water, it slows down and it drops its sediment. It builds a delta. The whole city of Portland, for example, is built on a giant delta. Ah. Right? New Orleans is built on a delta. Right? Okay, so what we're seeing there is a delta. And then in front of it, we're seeing rippled landscape. Let's keep coming around, Jamie. And so rippled can... landscape that looks exactly like the beach looks. Yeah, yeah. keep coming around with That's that. That's the Let's... thing. It's fractal because this, this yeah. is the, the whole mystery of this, that this happens at a scale of inches on beaches and a scale of hundreds of feet here. Stop again. Oh, okay. Lord. Now, right here. 
right here in the middle, you see a massive yeah. you know, like a big pump floating out. And then right down here, you start seeing the ripples. And there's a farmhouse. You see the farmhouse there? Mm. Now, those ripples are, the tallest ones are about the height of a five-story building. Whoa. How bizarre. Keep, okay, let's keep keep swinging around just here. Stop it. Stop this for a second. Um, if you don't have with the size of a five-story building, what is that? Like 70 feet or something like that? 50 feet. Okay. So that's those are 50 feet high. And how much water? Dude, we'll, we'll see. Let's see. Let's see the rest of it. And these are just dirt, right? They're they're well. If you dig into one, what you're going to find is they're a, they're a massive. Okay. Let's pause again. Whoa. Look at this. This is crazy. This is totally crazy. This is one of the craziest things you'll ever see. This, right this, here. These ripples, repeated ripples in an area where there's nothing else like it. This is the fingerprints of the flood. That's yeah. what it is. Wow. Where can someone look at this? How does someone look at this? In real? No, just right now. This is what we're looking at. This is this video. Um, well, my colleague Brad Young is with his drone. Um, and I think you've got it on the website, View of Cosmic Rex. Is this being played in the YouTube video right now? Okay. All right. Vertical. I don't know. Direction in the closet. Shit. So, the YouTube people are cool with it. If you're listening on iTunes, find it. Find it on YouTube. But it's worth looking at. It's my point. This is um, this is mind blowing shit. And I think I think you made the crucial point, Joe, which is which is that we can understand what this is because we can see it on any beach. We can yeah. see how water flows receding across a sandy medium will produce ripples. But here they're on this unbelievable scale where they're hundreds of feet long and fifty feet high, where they dwarf houses and they're lying all across. And that's what that tells us is that a huge water flow went across this plain and did this. Mudflat. This is a rare perspective on a plane or a helicopter or something. You get a chance to look at it. You really get a better sense of what it is. If you were on the ground there, you'd probably say, oh, look at all the hills. Uh, yeah, you don't yeah. quite get the impression, though. We did visit this location. Um, <laughs> that day it was overcast, so you don't quite get the effect like you do when you've got when a low sun angle. Mm -hmm. Really helps you to see what, what, what's going on in the landscape. Can I ask you, is there a dispute to this? Is there a. Um, no, no, nobody disputes it. No, nobody, so nobody disputes, disputes it. that this is no. from a flood? Not anymore. Wow. No. In fact, it was this. J.P. Let, let's be clear. Yeah. Nobody disputes that it was caused by massive water flows. Exactly. Okay. But those same people would still not buy into the notion that there was this one humongous flood. Okay. So they, they think it's an accumulative effect, but that this was all created this by This was the water. bottom of Lake Missoula, right? Yeah. And this is supposed to actually represent the drain of Lake Missoula. Right. Whereas I argue from a number of different reasons that this is the filling of I, I have a friend of mine who, uh, his friend lives in Montana, and they found a dinosaur on his ranch. Oh, wow. <laughs> cool. yeah, really recently. Yeah. We, 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 we should come yeah. back to that because there's a connection. Here. Yeah, the, well, the Great Western Inland Sea, all that that area. There was, I mean, this was a, cr a crazy place at one point in time. It still is, arguably. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different way. <laughs> the... The water here, Joe, that did this, the way to visualize this, it again begins to think of tsunami. You have to think tsunami because the right. tsunami is the closest scale of water flow that we've experienced in, in modern times. No river flood 
this is the this is why I okay. feel that the research Stop. in this field is so vital. Okay, right there. Yeah. Now here, notice. It's crazy. That's a beach. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it's a it's a beach it's a beach for giant monsters. Yeah. is What it is. You can see in this here that you've actually got three massive currents converging here. Do you see that over yeah. here on the right, you've got a massive current coming in that would be uh, from the west. And then we're standing, we would be standing looking down current. Of course, this, the, um, the drone I'm guessing here is about 200 feet in elevation. So the top of the water was another eight to 900 feet above this perspective right here. Mm -hmm. And it's moving very, very fast. And it's sweeping down into a river valley that's down in those mountains you see in the distance. Mm -hmm. And from there, it's being carried down and joining up other equally as large floods <coughs> coming in from other valleys. And all of this is happening at once, and it's covering five states, basically. And that's just one region that's being affected by this sudden catastrophic melting of the ice sheet. We this are dealing with the largest flood that ever occurred on Earth. It's simple. Yeah. This is insane. I mean, it's insane to look at. And it, it happened here in North America, and it happened 12,800 years ago, and its story has yet to be fully told. Isn't it possible there was something larger before, like uh, the 65 million year ago one that hit the Yucatan? Like, what, you know, what kind of an impact did that have? Well, it actually would because if, it, if that kind had of happened 12,000 right? years ago, we wouldn't be having None of us would be here. Today. Yeah, yeah. that would be a wrap, right? Yeah, that was right. a that, single large object. About six miles wide. That was yeah. that was a, a much more devastating impact than the impact of 12,800 years ago. But nevertheless, those impacts of 12,800 years ago were really, really bad, and they did yeah. stuff like this. And anything that was in the way of this, of these massive flows of water, would have been rubbed completely from the story. See, this all makes sense. Yeah, and here's the thing that the Michael Shermers don't get. When you understand the extent of this, the scale of this phenomenon, and the severity, the, the un inconceivable severity of this, in the aftermath of an event like this, what would remain of a of a city, a village, a refrigerator? Uh, 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 no, yeah. not a goddamn thing. No, nothing. Nothing. nothing not much. Would, nothing would exist in the yeah. aftermath of this. And most things wouldn't exist. I mean, you find like an old refrigerator or a car up on blocks in someone's backyard in the south, and it's you know, the 1970s, and the the, the rot has gotten into yeah. the frame. The, the, the nature's going to eat it up. Yeah, nature's eating it up just in a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. What's it going to do like in a couple thousand years? It's we should we should not be surprised about how little we really know about our past. This is also a comfort game with archaeology. Oh yeah, we've got the past all worked out. We understand it. Right. Here it is. This is what we teach in schools. This is what our friends in the media report. This is the fact. It's not the fact. We know nothing. It's there's there's been so much lost, so many missing pieces of the puzzle that we're, you know, desperately trying to stitch together. And it's important, I think, that we actually do get some clarity on events like this because we still live on this planet and we have kids and we have a future and we want to, hopefully. we want to, hopefully, we want Not to... one of those big boys comes our way. Well, that's, that's right. But again, I come, I come down to this, which, yeah. is, which is that we are not dealing with green and green and the end of the world. We're dealing with a problem that humanity should be confronting. We should not be sticking our heads in the sand. We should be confronting this problem. And that's why I support yeah, the work of the Common Research Group, because they are the only people right now who are confronting this problem and really getting to grips with it. We should all confront. I mean, we should absolutely all support them and confront this, because this, at some point, this can happen once. What's, is, what, what really makes sense is how many stories of floods there are in ancient times. 
and how many parallels there are. There are. And how many there are from North America? Yeah. Oh, dozens and dozens. Yeah, it was the um, caveman, um, the Indian artist who spent 30 years or so pre-Civil War, I think maybe a decade after the Civil War, painting Indians of different tribes. And he wrote a book called Last Rambles Amongst the North American Indians. Very, very interesting book. But what really is interesting to me when I read the book years and years ago was his final conclusion of the book. He says, after all of these different customs and traditions that have been handed down amongst these tribes, they all have one thing in common. They all have a memory or a story of a gigantic world-destroying flood. And he... And he this has included tribes down into Central America that he visited. I, I believe the Americas are the repository. The, the, the Native American peoples who have been subjected to so much destruction over the years, they, in their mythology, their traditions, their memories, they keep more of this than almost anybody else. It's, it's, really, it's really tragic what has happened in the Americas from the time of the Spanish conquest the deliberate destruction of knowledge, the, 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 the terrible, horrendous abuses that makes American people suffer. They are our wisdom keepers. They are the people who pass down the oral tradition and, and remember the past. So not only do we have cataclysm wiping the human memory, but we ourselves actively get involved in the human memory and wipe it. We rub it out. The burning of the Maya codices by the Spanish friars, thousands and thousands. God knows what was in those documents. You know, we might have had a whole other story about ourselves if we could have had it. But instead, we're this destructive Cunt. cannibalistic species that just goes and dis dis smashes everything to bits. It's a weird impulse that human beings have is when they move into an area and they take over it. One of the things they like to do is destroy their icons. Destroy everything. What's well, going on with ISIS and all these uh, ancient Buddhist structures? Yes. A thousand plus year old beautiful sculptures and they're blowing them up. They're yelling and, and yelling ha! praise God while they're doing it. It's really. Very bizarre. It's a very oh, bizarre I was going to ask you about... It's almost like we don't want there were any more. to know. Yes. You know, it's a bizarre, almost um, human... Yeah, there are somewhere. To wipe out I think there's one outside where uh, Hermes is in... some trauma? Is there some collective trauma? Some deeply, deeply suppressed yeah. memory Could be, yeah. that, that, we, that we can't quite confront? That's, that's exactly the thought that I had, because I think that that's the one way, one of those areas where Velikovsky finally really nailed it for mankind in amnesia, mm -hmm. that somehow we carry this, the trauma. Because once you begin to get to get a handle, you get to get, get the picture of these events as they occurred and did occur and would have been experienced by our ancestors, you've got to understand, what would it be like to see your entire world completely obliterated, starting over again from basically a barren mud field? Mm. You know, that's the same thing what these people were facing. If, if they lived at all, and well, so few probably did. they did, did because right. here we are, but, you know, again, the evidence is emerging of major cultural collapse. If you had a guess, what percentage of the population of human beings, just as obviously as just a guess, but how many do you think were wiped out? Half of them? Three quarters of them? I don't think that would be unrealistic. No. It doesn't They're, seem like it would be, and if it was that number, and those people, that's enough for people to survive, and if it was that number, Boy, what a strange fucking mythical mm -hmm. path they would have. The other, the other the thing to bear in mind is, in the world today, our world, we have an advanced civilization. America, you know, Germany, the, the, the industrialized technological countries. And we have coexisting with them in South America, in the, 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 the Namibian desert. We have hunter-gatherers. So the, the notion that hunter-gatherers and an advanced civilization might coexist right. in the same epoch of history should not be strange to us because we're doing that today. And that 
what I would suggest happened before 12,800 years ago, before the cataclysm of 12,800 years ago, that there was a fairly advanced civilization that was capable of mapping and exploring the world, creating gigantic works of architecture, and it coexisted with hunter-gatherers. And who were the ones who survived the cataclysm? The answer is, the ones who survived the cataclysm were the hunter-gatherers, not the sophisticated people. A few of them survived, and they then settled amongst the hunter-gatherers and tried to transfer some of their knowledge and skills to them. And it's the same today. If we, if we were to have a repeat of the Younger Dryas cataclysm today, I don't think that people from Los Angeles or London would be amongst the leading survivors. Right. I think the survivors would be people like the hunter-gatherers of the Amazon rainforest because they're in the business of surviving. That's what they do. It's not a mystery to them. It's not even a problem. They do it, they do it all the time. They would, they would carry the human story forward. And 10,000 years from now, their descendants would be telling a myth about how there was once a great civilization on this planet, so advanced that they could even go to the moon. They could fly around the planet. They could speak to one another on other sides of the Earth. But they did something wrong. They, they fell out of harmony with they blew the universe. Themselves they to wear their <laughs> prosperity with moderation. That's actually a line from Plato about Atlantis. Wow. And the universe slapped them down. So there would be a differential survival rate. Those who were, I would say that those who are more technologically advanced are less likely to survive because they depend on a complex interrelated network of skills. And any individual on his or her own, most of them, well, you're different, Joe, because you do know how to survive, but a lot of people don't know yeah, how to survive. I barely know how to survive. <laughs> Like but at least you've worked death. at it. You yeah, know. but I'm not that good at it. But most, no, of us ha most of us haven't even worked at it at all. We haven't got a clue. Let me fucking open everybody's eyes. All these people who think that you, you just go out there and shoot animals and stay alive. Good fucking luck. <laughs> you're, you're probably screwed if you have a rifle. Even if you have a rifle, you're probably screwed. If you have a bow and arrow, you're going to fucking starve to death. Right. It's extremely difficult yeah. to get close. You know. and, and yet hunter-gatherers for thousands and thousands of years have succeeded in doing that, like the, the, yeah. the, the bushmen of the Kalahari. I think there was less humans and more animals. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's also part of the rub. Okay. Like we're dealing with, is that one of the terrible things we've done is taking these giant swaths of land and made them entirely inhabitable for wildlife, mm -hmm. like cities. Like, you, you, when you, how many people grow food in the city? What is the percentage? Is it even one-tenth of one percent of people in the city grow their own food? Probably not. Probably not even that. So you have these massive, essentially, deserts with, where no wildlife exists, other than predatory species like coyotes and ravens and things like that. that take, and then you, you, you go out from there, and then you have these vast farmlands. Yes. The only benefit of the vast farmlands is the amount of deer that exists now is greatly more than when Columbus landed. But it's because they've almost become an agricultural animal. It's yeah. almost like they're almost a domesticated animal. They're a free, wild, domesticated animal. Like I have a friend who has a farm in Iowa, and when you go there, it's, it's very strange because he's got these wild, giant, 300-pound forest horses running around his backyard. I mean, they're, they're fucking everywhere. There's all these giant deer, and when we were there, it's what's called the rut, so all these, these they're very horny, so the big bucks usually hide, they show themselves, I'm like, this is a crazy place. Like, there's all these wild animals that ex exist along with people. And even in a game-rich place like that, it's incredibly difficult yeah. to get to one. And you have to have vegetables. You have to have your own vegetables. Mm. So let's imagine a situation where all the resources of our cities, all the yeah, all the amenities, starved. all the infrastructure are gone. Most and of us are fucked. 
I would say radically, our, our, I would say in fact our civilization which appears so strong is actually very, very fragile. Extremely. It's just a little push. It's like when you look out the window and you're like, wow, that's the outside. No, that's a piece of glass. You're outside. <laughs> Knock that piece of glass and you're outside. You know, yeah. like the, the effortless it is, yeah. it just seems impenetrable because, mm. you know, you pull the shades tight and you set your alarm clock yeah. and sleep. You're sleeping next to glass. Yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> it's hilarious. You feel yeah. confident and yet you're sleeping next to a piece yeah. of fucking glass. Now, there's this incredible complacency and, and, and arrogance yeah. of, of modern civilization that we are the apex and pinnacle of the human story, that we're the best that's ever come, and, and, and that's a danger, mythologically, that is a very dangerous place to be. When yeah. you start imagining yourself as the apex and the pinnacle of everything, that's precisely when the universe reminds you that you are not that at all. Yeah, it's a very weird existence that we have where we just sort of look at how things are right now and we can't imagine things being any different. No matter what, whether it's, whether it's people that have to come to... Uh, the realization that they've, they've been injured, like someone breaks their leg, and all of a sudden it just doesn't compute. Like, how come I can't walk anymore? Well, your reality has now shifted. And this reality that we have here with this fairly healthy Earth could shift at any moment. The, the, the Yellowstone volcano is the one that's been freaking me out the most over the last few years. Another big issue. Yeah. An interesting parallel would be if we look at smaller, what happens in smaller catastrophes, like we've seen today. When we look at the... Um, at, for example, when Katrina hit hit New Orleans, mm. right? It was almost as if the human species separated into two subspecies. You had one group of people that rose to the occasion and did heroic things. They organized and they saved people spontaneously, you know, because the government was conspicuously absent for five days, the first mm -hmm. five days of the Katrina disaster. And here you had a, a major flooding of, of New Orleans and and you had people spontaneously organizing and performing these heroic actions of, of saving their fellow man and, and doing just stupendous things, superhero type things. But then you had another segment of the population that just went completely barbaric. And you had mass rape and you know smashing of, of businesses and looting and, and, and just people running into wild, complete, unrestrained gangs just and, and just committing violent acts at random. So, and know, America, the richest country on earth, did not manage that crisis well. No. I mean, it was very, no, it, it, and that was a little crisis by comparison with what we're talking about. Remember when Kanye West got on TV? George Bush does not like black people. Oh, I don't remember that, but yeah. George Bush, I think it was on day four, George Bush flew over in Air Force One and, and looked out the window. Wave. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but there's there's a lesson lesson in those yeah. kinds of events. Sure. Yeah, we're not prepared. We, and we have to extrapolate from that. And and you know, if you go back, and we, well, you know, I oftentimes as a thought exercise think how how would we respond if we knew that there was a high probability of a younger dryest type event or series of events impending in our future? What would you do? Start drinking or? Well, what it depends. It all depends on lead time. Right. It all okay. depends on lead time. What if it's a 10-day lead time? Like, you're not going to be able to shoot a rocket up there. Listen, man, fire up that Uber again and let's exactly. you know, go hard. Go hard to the end. Yeah. yeah. 10 days. But 10 years or 20 mm -hmm. years. Then we can do some stuff. Then we so, can do some stuff. The real scary thing is, there's two scary things. One, uh, if you survived. 
Because you're like, fuck. You know, if you if you really did survive and everybody else was jacked and all of a sudden you're dealing with some Mad Max type reality mm-hmm. where people are starving to death and they're mm-hmm. very desperate and they become almost like animals, mm-hmm. that's ent- entirely in- inside the realm of possibility. Well, that's oh. what we learned from Katrina. Joe Rogan experienced 872 Graham Hancock and Randall Carson. Down here in the foreground, you see the modern-day Columbia River. From the top of the ridge, where you see those the, the agriculture and the landscape, down to the river, it's about a thousand feet. Wow. So you basically have to picture you've got this huge sheet of, of water, three to four hundred feet deep. It's rushing over, and it finds a low, the lowest spot within this ridge, and that's where it starts focusing its energy. Mm. And as it does, it begins to just strip away the rock. Now, what you're looking at here is this cataract complex is about five miles swiftly moving with this much turbulence, you literally have particular eddies, high intensity, high amplitude, high energy, underwater tornadoes, literally underwater tornadoes. Now these underwater tornadoes are typically in this case about a half a mile wide. Oh my God. And they're spinning at a high rate of speed and they're right there, they're probably 600 feet deep because the water pouring over the ridge is at least 200 and you can see what it's done to the bedrock. Anybody listening, you gotta you gotta look at this. You have to look at this and then listen to the scale. This is this is a gigantic scar in the landscape, of which there are hundreds uh, around this this and region. The, the exact location, Robert. This is Potholes Cataract. Right. The exact location. Yeah. Um, Somebody wants to get to it. Which we're in Washington State still. Yes, we're in Washington State, Central Washington. It's gonna be right on the Columbia River, um, just below Wenatchee. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, where we saw that, where we saw that huge, that huge erratic, that yes, giant close. eighteen thousand ton boulder brought there, enchained in I an mean, iceberg, gonna... an iceberg floating on the flood, carry an iceberg the size of an oil tanker, carrying an eighteen thousand ton boulder, carried on the flood, grounds seven hundred feet up a valley side, rests there as the flood waters recede, the ice melts away, and the boulder is left sitting there. We're, we're going to look Holy at a picture shit. of that boulder in a second. What are the people back in this part of the country, what do they think about this? Well, you know, they're only just catching on to what they're sitting on top of. Jesus the, the first time I went out here in 98, there was the, the, the Ice Age Floods Institute, and I went to their only location, which was a which was in the um, Better Business Bureau in, in Moses Lake, Washington. And it was, they had one room in the back of this Better Business Bureau, or no, Chamber of Commerce, Chamber of Commerce. And there was two elderly ladies in there who were basically the, the overseers of the group. Now there's about two dozen chapters. And-